we're going to now look to the Word of God. Um, it's good to see you here and some faces I haven't seen in a while. And as well, those that were here last week, I'm glad that you came back because we, uh, we ended on a bit of an intense note um, last week as um, there was a strong exhortation for all of us um, to be people who are willing to and see their obligation to share the Word of God with others who are without Christ. And um, I want to share some things with you as we begin. Uh, There are some numbers that I've been sharing just about every week that I don't want us to forget. Numbers we should never forget. And maybe you remember some of them by now. I've referenced them every time, and uh, I think it's appropriate when we think about the number of people who die every year. Um, Globally, what's our number? 64 million people die around the globe. Uh, Think about that. That's 1.25 million people die per week, 178,000 per day, 7,440 per hour, 124 people per minute around the globe. So I'll preach for about 44 minutes or so. And think about that. How many people are going to pass into eternity? Uh, In our country, 2.8 million people die per year. 54,000 a week, 7,700 a day, 322 every hour, 5.3 every minute in the United States. So again, think about that. If I'm preaching for um, 40 minutes and you multiply that by that 5.3, how many people have passed into eternity And it's something else that I need to remind you of, as I have before. Um, There are two roads, are there not? And which are the roads? What are they? There's a broad road and there is a... uh, Where do most people find themselves? On the broad road. Which means of those 64 million, which means of those, you know, 2.8 million that will die globally or in the States, the majority will be on the broad road. Now, the first message that I shared with you in this series was really a challenge for all of us to think like uh, the watchman of Ezekiel. God is charging Ezekiel and those prophets that they must be a watchman. And if we're going to be a watchman, it means that we have to be attentive, obviously. And if we're going to be a watchman, it means that we have to be committed, because if we're not committed, we may fall, what, asleep on the job. Um, No person in duty... Uh, if they are a person committed to the cause, is going to fall asleep. I even shared with you a very interesting illustration of real life um, from those, uh, something I watched some time ago that had to do with special ops in our armed forces, and one was with airborne rangers and the strict training that they went through. And for a period of time, their um, very intense training marches drills that they're going through for about 36 hours with no sleep. And essentially, if you fell asleep, you were out of the program. I mean, to even be a part of the selection uh, process for an airborne ranger, you have to be one of the toughest of the tough. But they're saying, we want even another level. And if you fall asleep, you're out. And at times, some men would go to the extreme measures to make sure that they remained awake. And they were interviewing one guy, and he made it through. He said that some would actually put hot sauce in their eyes. And so as they would just, imagine that, you're just blinking and 
you're blinking and you're blinking and you, you're just going to be agitated for how many hours because you don't wash it out to get relief and you stay awake. Because he's saying, I will go to whatever measure it takes to say I have what it takes. I want to be an airborne ranger. And he said, some, and I would never forget the guy's face. He says, well, some did this, but not me. And he says, some, actually what they would do is pin their eyelids up like that. Imagine that. And it's an extreme measure. But what was it communicating? I cannot fall asleep. I'm on watch. You cannot fall asleep. You're on watch. And you don't have to be a pastor or seminary trained. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be an elder or deaconess or or have some title. You're all watchmen. The moment you became a Christian, you became a watchman, did you not? And this is why Paul would even say to Timothy that um, you are a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good soldier is not concerned about the things of everyday life. I was with some friends recently, and we were talking about um, different uh, things in their life and, and that we remember. And I had mentioned how the Lord, which you've heard before from me, as I've wanted to go into the military as well, and the Lord closed that door uh, for me. And I remember talking to my aunt about that, the one who prayed every day for my soul that I would be saved. And she knew I was heartbroken over it, and she said to me this, and I'll never forget it. She has since gone on to her reward in heaven, she said to me, yes, Carl, you may not be a soldier uh, for the United States, but you're a soldier for the Lord. And this is true. And that's why Paul says no soldier, and notice what he says, in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. Now, who enlisted him? So, someone say it. The Lord Jesus Christ enlisted him. Who enlisted you? Amen. You are enlisted. You've been drafted. And it wasn't that you did not volunteer. Do you understand that? (laughs) And why did you not volunteer? Well, there's a problem called a sin nature. None of us wanted to volunteer. Every one of us was drafted. And I can say, praise God that I was drafted because I'm on the winning team. (laughs) Those numbers should resonate with us. They really should. They must, actually. We already talked about um, three ways in which God has expectations. And that's our emphasis even uh, as we try to bring this series to a close, the expectations. We talked about the right language we have to speak. We talked about the right person that we must preach. And now we're talking about the right expectations that are necessary. And one thing you need to understand is what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying when it comes to expectations that the sort of, um, if you will, purpose then of life when we share the gospel is to inspect, inspect every person who's made a profession. That's not it. And it's not, what I'm not saying is this, when it comes to these expectations, obviously we all in some ways fail in these expectations. Because if we think about this expectation to follow God, Christ made it very clear that we're to be followers of God, we're to commit to him, we're to take us, uh, put aside the things of our former life and strive after him. And what does it mean to follow God? It, it's the idea that we're willing to forsake the sin which once bound us. We're willing to identify with the meek even of the world, and Jesus Christ was among those meek. 
We're willing to follow Christ and set aside any person or any promise or any treasure of this world and follow the purpose of God, which is to glorify himself. Amen. Now, that is a follower of God. But sometimes we don't follow the way that we like to. So I'm not saying if a person doesn't meet that expectation always, then we can question their faith. Now, we'll talk about a little bit later on in this message, there is a time to question and to wonder whether or not they really know the Lord. Then we talk briefly about living by the same standard. Um, we see this in Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians nine twenty four, and the idea that society prides itself in really continually disavowing God's moral standards. And what they do is they create their own standards. But as I said last week, there's a problem with society creating a standard because of authorship. With the authorship of God's word, we can trust it absolutely because of the author, can we not? We absolutely do, because the scripture tells us what it is God breathed. It is inspired by God. But when it comes to authorship of the human, ah, no, it can't. Even what I wrote in the Anchored Thoughts, I sent it out yesterday, and I looked at it this morning. I thought, oh, no. Ah, I went and made a change. Uh, I think I, was, I had one thought that I was thinking one way and another verb another way, and I merged the two together, and I thought, let me make this change. That's wrong. Let me edit this, because we have flaws. We, have, we can't trust our, our authorship. And society cannot be trusted because of authorship, society's standard is going to be based on what? Humanism. And if we have a standard that's based on humanism, it is going to contradict God's absolute pure moral standards. But we have a standard. We must live by it. There there is a roadmap, if you will. Uh, There are parameters that are set. There is a road, and we have to travel on that road. You can't travel at the speed that you want. You can't get on and off of the road. He's saying, once you travel this road, you must maintain it. You must, once you put your hands to the plow, if you will, you cannot do what? Look back. Then we end it, and I actually put it out of order from last week, excel still more. And it's beautiful. I remind you that the church of Thessalonica was a praiseworthy church. But Paul said to them, excel still more. Not simply to excel, but more. You are excelling, but there's more. And what this does, it speaks against Christian complacency. We cannot, we must not be complacent. How can we be when you think about it? Because we're striving after perfection. Our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are imperfect beings, so we're forever trying to excel because we will never in one sense be as he is until we pass into eternity. Is this not right? Absolutely it is. But I want you to notice something that we didn't say. Uh, Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 that we didn't get to last week. 1 Thessalonians 4 and then in verse 10. Notice what he says here. Um, For indeed, well, verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no one No need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren 
who are all in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So we have to pause for a moment and think about the context. So here, the particular context is an exhortation to do what? Love one another. Love more. Why excel still more? It's important that we note that. Why excel still more? Yes, there is a a general principle that we can say that we should excel in everything because it would be ridiculous to say, I'm going to excel in love, but in nothing else. Then that would mean that you're really not excelling in, in love. I'm excelling in patience, but not love. That's not possible because the person who really is excelling in love will be what? Will be patient. So he says, why excel in love? And I would say this, because love is the perfect bond of unity. Um, in Colossians, he says, and above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Why love? Because love is the demonstration of brotherly sacrifice. The scripture tells us plainly, greater love hath no man than this, than he do what? Lay down his life. Lay down his life for his brother. Think about that. Love. Love is the core of the sacrifice of the cross. And what's the scripture tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love demonstrated. So this is why we have to excel in love because it, in one sense, is such a foundation, such an anchor to everything else that we do. And I would say love is a key motivation and the son's desire to glorify the father. And what did he say? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John eight twenty nine, And constantly we see, particularly in the gospel of John, it is the father loves the son and the son loves the father. And why does the son lay down his life? Because he loves the father. He wants the father to be glorified. So he says, excel in love. So the expectation is that obviously we be followers of God. We live by his rules and by his standards. We cannot create our own. We excel still more. We're never satisfied in our Christian life. And here's the next consideration. Number four is this, that you be doers of the word. Doers of the word. Doers of the word. The Christian journey is this. The Christian journey is balanced by really a response to the grace that I would say both obligates us and motivates us to demonstrate this new life, this new life on a daily basis. Um, We are called to be doers because the world has done what? The world, the word that is, has taken residence in our heart. And because the word is in our heart, we simply want to practice what is true is true of us now. I mean, what is the argument of James? The argument of James is clear, which is practice authenticates genuine faith. And I would say lack of practice is then evidence of a spurious, really, profession of faith. If we really are people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we will show, we will demonstrate faith towards our God. Jesus Christ is the example. And what is that example? The example is clear, as we even alluded to earlier, that Jesus Christ would say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Think about that for a moment. Uh, That's always been a fascinating verse to me. 
to always be pleasing to God. That is my very heartbeat. And of course he would do it because here is God amongst men and he, okay, that's, that's Siri. Sometimes I need to really turn this thing off whenever I preach. Uh, I, yeah, she's learning my language. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Nice catch. Uh, so we're to be a people who please him and strive to do that, to be a doer of the word. Is our faith real? The argument of James, if your faith is real, it will show evidence of it. And then that's why even we said, if we're to excel in love, you love me. Christ said, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. Obvious. Then if you do not keep the commandments of God, it is questionable whether or not you have a love for God. Because the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're a joy. Yes, and notice what I said at the beginning. It is an obligation and a motivation. We are obligated, but it's a joyous obligation. Some things we we can do it begrudgingly, right? Oh boy, I guess I have to. Ultimately, we really shouldn't do that with anything because the scripture tells us everything that you do, you do it to what? The glory of God. But let's just be real for a moment. But when it comes to following the commands of God, it should be a joy. I mean, think, now I have the opportunity to be a follower of God when I was previously what? An enemy of God. When I fought against God. When I did not love God. When I hated God. Now I can be a follower of God. Why should I not do this with joy? To be a doer of the word. Um, let me, let's go to our next point. And it's this, put on and put off. Just simply that, put on and put off. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. So, follow God, live by his standards, excel more, be doers of the word, put on and put off. Now, in making this point, allow me to go back two weeks, um, and I want to clarify an illustration that I used when I taught. And I talked about... um, the idea of something in me, I always wanted to have someone in front of me, even when I ran track. And that was sort of in my blood, even as a football player um, as well. I, I love running after people and tackling people. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, you, that's just the reality of it all. Um, and I mentioned, I always, when it came to track, and I ran track as well, I didn't want to be in the lane that was in front. And I think I actually referred to as the number one. The number one is actually here. That would be the number eight if you have a full circuit. Uh, but then, then I, so my mind went to this idea. I love the number four lane. You say, wait a minute, why would you love the number four lane? Because it's right in the middle. It was better on the turn when you made a turn. But it was also the sense you're chasing someone, but you also know someone's behind you. You hear those footsteps. And it makes you run at a faster pace. And you see that other person in front of you, or persons in front of you, and you're chasing them down. In the Christian life, it's sort of that way. You say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Track illustrations, that sort of thing. Oh, this is very Pauline, is it not? It's very Pauline. That we run according to what? The rules of the race. We're competing for a wreath, for a prize, for a goal. And so in Colossians 4 and Colossians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, we're told to put on and put off. 
It is the idea when it comes to our old life, we're putting off these things, discarding them, and we're striving for new life. But let me show you the Pauline thought behind what I'm saying. Look with me at 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. And what does it say here? Verse 21 says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then in verse 22, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So the language here, when I think about being in that sort of middle lane, if you will, I'm pursuing something, but I'm running from something. And this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Flee from youthful lusts, those that are coming behind you. But if you're going to flee properly, you must be striving for something. Do you agree with me? And he says, that's what you have to pursue. And one thing about running, one thing about track is this. I've seen many people lose races when they look back too much. And I've seen it literally um, at the finish line. They're about to cross. And sometimes what people do is this. They're about to cross and they think I haven't won and they celebrate too early. Have you seen that before? And someone blazes past them and now they're dejected. And I've also seen people when they're running in a race and someone's behind them and they keep looking back. You're going to lose pace when you do that. You know they're there, so you run from it, but you're running toward a goal. And this is what Paul said to Timothy, flee from these things so you can be that useful vessel. But how can you properly do it? By pursuing something else. So the question for us is, what are you pursuing? The expectation of the gospel when you share the gospel is that you're calling people to pursue something. You're calling them to flee from something else. You're calling them to put on and to put off. Uh, the Christian life is not neutral. This is a journey of progressive sanctification. And in this progressive sanctification, we're striving for and we're running from. And we must do it diligently. We must do it diligently. Here's a fifth consideration for you. Expectation. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Uh, What is the greatest commandment? What is it? To love the Lord. All your heart, mind, and soul. We're to love the God who ransomed himself, his son, for our souls. We're to love God who is worthy of all our affection and our attention and absolutely our obligation and all of our resources. Would you agree with that? People who have um, come to a genuine faith are those who stand in contrast to their former life. They hate the, the world system. They cannot love it because the world system is bent towards God. Um, believers, it is bent against what? Our God, is it not? So how can we love it? If we love God, we cannot love a system that is bent against our God. It is against us. It fights against us. 
Why love your enemy from that standpoint? Of course not. Believers cannot and must not be divided. They cannot have a divided love. Jesus Christ is clear about this, wasn't he? Um, you cannot have two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other. You cannot love both. I cannot love the world and love God at the same time. This is why I have to put off and put on. This is why I have to flee and pursue. Now, one of the greatest temptations that every believer is facing is what? The child of God and these sort of constant allurements of the world. The world wants us to say, why don't you come here? The world is constantly bidding us to listen to it. The world is constantly bidding us to say, taste of this, hear this, do this. The consequences won't be as much as you think they will be. This world system hates us. And what does it do? It, it wants to reorient our thinking, does it not? It doesn't want us to take on the mind of Christ. And the scripture is clear. Um, Ephesians 4 tells us what? We're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. The scripture also tells us that we have the mind of Christ. And what does the world system want us to do? It wants to reorient our thinking. And so as a man is, it's really how he thinks is who he is. Is it not true? And the system says this. It wants to undermine our faith. Jesus Christ, in fact, is not exclusive. It wants to discredit the truths that we hold dear to our faith. It wants, to, it wants us to question the word of God. This world system um, finds itself, sadly to say, in many churches today, because there were many churches today. First, they won't even open the word of God to teach it. They don't see it as a priority. And it's a questionable whether or not they can even really be deemed a church when they don't do that. And there are institutions that will teach men that there are portions of this that we cannot fully trust. Actually, there are portions of it that we cannot even trust at all. That is the world system. And so it is clear that we cannot love that because it speaks against the God that has loved us so much to give his life for us. John says, if you love the world, then it means you have not experienced the love of God. And notice what he says about this. Just go there briefly. First Peter. So when we are sharing the gospel with people, we are telling them this former love that you have must be set aside. The world system wants to reorient our thinking. It wants to discredit our truths. And it also wants to do this. It wants to make us as spiritually ineffective as possible. Because what does sin do? You become spiritually ineffective. When we discard the truths of God's word, we become spiritually ineffective. And this is what the system wants of us. The enemy cannot take us, that is, the enemy cannot take our salvation from us. This is fast and secure, but we can live a life that may not be as effective as God would desire and has designed. And if we are not running from and striving to, that will be the case. See, all these things are the opposite of the world. 1 John 2, do not love the world, verse 15, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John is clearly skating here. The love of God has been shed abroad in your heart, which he said elsewhere. And if that is in fact true, you cannot have a dual love. 
Your affections cannot be in two places. They must be singular and they must be focused. But here's the reality. Through the Christian life, that is a part of the battle, isn't it? To make sure that our focus is singular. But God gives us hope because the love of God is in us and we just have to nurture it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of this world system. It's passing away. The lust of the flesh, those things that we would desire, that, that we crave, the lust of the eyes, and, and we see it and we want to attain it. Um, it's amazing how when we have a, a hunger for something, how we make decisions that we normally wouldn't make. I mean, think about it on a real practical standpoint. Um, what's one thing that my, even when Joanna and I were away, we celebrated early for our, um, our anniversary, and um, we were, I told you, we were up at Crater Lake, and we had been gone all, all day and didn't eat anything, and, and that's the last thing you should do when you go to a restaurant, right? And we went to a nice barbecue restaurant, and we ordered everything on the books. We really did. And we'll take the hush puppies, and we'll take... Uh, and we had the seasoned fries, and we had the ribeye, and we had the burnt tips, and we had this as well. We thought, what are we doing? And when all the food came out, we thought, well, here are the next three meals for us, which it really was. We were hungry, and in that moment, we just weren't thinking properly. We wanted it, and we saw it, and therefore we ordered it. <laughs> yeah, did we eat it? We ate a good bit of it, trust me, but not all of it. On a spiritual level, the lust of the eyes, I see it. I'm hungering for it. I'll take it. There's that fruit that our our spiritual father and mother saw. It's good. I'll take it. There's Achan. You remember Achan? And he saw the things that were under the ban, and he took them. And what did it cost? His life and the life of his family. There's a history of men, they see things, and they lust after it, and they want it, because they're craving. And the reason they're craving is because God is not satisfying to them. Just like us in a practical practical illustration, go back to us and ordering that meal. Had we had, you know, a full breakfast, had we had some snacks along the way, maybe if we had a protein bar or two, when we went to the barbecue place, we'd be like, oh, let's just get a meal and split it. Really? (laughs) Theoretically. Theoretically, it's true. (laughs) Right? When a person has an abiding relationship with God, when they're pursuing God and satisfied in God, then when someone presents them the things of the world, oh, friend, I'm, I'm, I'm quite full. That's not appealing to me. Why? No, it's not. I'm striving out the faith and righteousness. I'm striving out the person of Christ. Why would you offer me that? Why would you offer me the stench that comes from this garbage when I can have the beauty of God? Why would you offer me ungodliness when I can have holiness? Why should you offer me things that are temporal when I can have something that is eternal? Why do you offer me something that, um, as Christ would say, what's going to happen? Rust 
and moth will destroy when I can have something that is in fact eternal and it will never decay. It makes no sense. However, if you have been dining improperly, it may be appealing to you. As a matter of fact, it will be appealing to you. And you will strive after that. And you will order as much as you can for a period of time. And then by the grace of God, we pray, you come to grips with what you're doing, and you realize, oh my, what am I doing here? I'm rummaging through the garbage when I could be dining with the king. This makes no sense whatsoever. So don't love the world. It's passing away. There's the temporal. Don't love the world, a boastful pride of life. And God hates pride. Why should I strive after these things? Don't love the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the eyes. It's just temperate. It seems to be. And here's the thing about sin is this. Here's the reality of it. Often sin will present itself as very beautiful, but yet on the other side, it's dead men's bones. Now, if we were to truly be, some of you have some time in life with you I look about. And what do I mean by that? You have gone through enough of life, and some of you probably came to Christ later on, and there are decisions that you made in life, and you know I'm true at this point, where you decided, yes, it looks to be a great decision, a great person, a great circumstance. And you choose that circumstance, and lo and behold, the veil is removed, and say, this is ugly. This is horrible. Why did I make this choice? See, that's the lust of the eyes. The world is not going to tell you, this may cost you your life. The world is not going to tell you, this may cost you your marriage. The world is not going to tell you, this may cost you your family. The world will not tell you, this will cost you your testimony. The world doesn't tell you, you will be highly ineffective if you make this choice. The world doesn't say to you, this is going to mute your spiritual voice if you make this decision. It doesn't. It says you can't love the world. The world is your enemy. It is fighting against you. You're at war with the world. Why come to terms with your enemy? No. So we have to have the right expectations. Don't love the world. And people that want to continue to love the world is evidence that maybe they have not come to Christ. And a person who is unwilling to put aside the world, it's questionable whether or not God is calling. Here's a, another consideration for you. The time of sin is past. It's past. Go with me to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. And what does it say here? 1 Peter 4. And I'm going to read through verse 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that they do, you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. 
they malign you. What's the point here when you were sharing the gospel and the gospel itself is a call to say you've had sufficient time to live in the world, to live for the things of the world. And what is he telling us here? Several things even that Christ's death is the motivation. Christ's death is the motivation for us to strive towards these things. How do we know that? Notice what it says. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. So since he has suffered in the flesh, I must live my life um, in view of that suffering, in view of that sacrifice. And that should motivate me to strive after the things that are in front of me. And then it is a motivation. But also we would say this Christ's death requires a response. What's the response? Notice what he says. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose to do battle. Arm yourselves, be prepared. Um, he states this actually back in chapter 1, verse 13, a similar thought. Notice one thirteen. There he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep so- sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, a response is necessary, which is to arm yourselves or to be resolved. It, the same purpose. What does it mean, the same purpose? It can mean the same insight, the same intention, our resolve, held the same resolve. And I think resolve is a good translation. Be resolved as Christ was resolved. Christ was absolutely resolved, was he not? Um, Isaiah 56 and 7, it says that he put his, his face like flint. He was resolved to go and sacrifice. Um, even in not Luke 9.51 is communicating this same thought as Jesus is going to give his life a ransom. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly, as the New King James says, set his face to go to Jerusalem. We must be resolved. Are you resolved to live this Christian life? So next we should consider this. Christ's death provides a rationale. A rationale. Notice the latter part of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he suffered, you will suffer, be resolved as he was resolved, and realize this, what's the rationale behind it? You cease from sin. That's the explanation of the the resolution, if you will. It's over with. You have now new life. That's why, as we say before, be doers of the word. Of course, doers of the word. Now the word of God is in you. This new life is in you. Live out this new life is what's being communicated here. These believers of now, they've broken with the power of sin. And it says, now realize the time that you had is over with. Christ's death also does this, gives us purpose. It gives us purpose. What's the purpose? So, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Here's our purpose in life. It's to live for the Lord and his will. Before we knew the Lord, we were all outside of the will of God. And now that we know the Lord, we're all striving to understand the will of God. Are we not? We're on this road and along this road, sometimes we're wondering, okay, what is God's will in this particular situation? How do I know it? How do I handle this situation? How do I grow in patience? How do I grow and be a more gracious person? How do I grow and become a person that's more committed and more consistent? We're trying to discover the will of God. And this thought just came to me. I love the verse. 
um, Psalm 37 and 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. You will know the will of God. How do I know the will of God once I find delight in God? And which also means this, when I find delight in God, it will mean this, often it will mean this, your desires will change. Your plans will change. What you had ordered for life will change. And everyone in this room today would say, you know what? Um, I'm thankful for the times of my life when I look back and see how God changed the plans for my life. And he reordered life for me. Notice what he says, the time. And then verse 3, the time already passed is sufficient. It's just plain language here. He's saying to the church, is of Asia Minor, you had a period of time to live in the world, to live apart from God. Now, strive towards him. There was enough of, and he listed here, you had enough time with sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking party and abominable idolatries. Now, substitute all of them with things that are virtuous. It's sufficient. Now live for God. Some translations, when they deal with this, it says this, the ESV says, the time is, is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The New King James says this, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. The King James says this, past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. The contemporary English version says this, having already lived long enough like people who don't know God. The NIV says this, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. It's over with. Why would you continue to identify with people who don't know God? Why would you continue to identify with pagans? Now you are a child of God. Live appropriately. And Christ's death tells us to forsake. Christ's death tells us we can make new choices. Here's a last consideration for you. And sharing the gospel and these expectations, loving God. And I merged some other thoughts under this to support it. Instead of them being individual thoughts, loving God. And let's just read it. We're familiar with it, but sometimes it's just, it's just good to read the word of God, isn't it? Let's just read it. Matthew 22. So we end with this. We tell people you're to be a lover of God. This is what you're called to do. And I might say this. If we truly love God, everything that I've said over the last several weeks, all the other lessons will be a joy to you. You will be a watchman. Why would I not be a watchman? I love God. Why would I not speak the language that God speaks? I love God. Why would I not follow him? What is the other recourse? Follow the course of this world? No. Why would I not put on and put off? Why would I not excel still more? I'm a lover of God. What does it say? Matthew 20, 24. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Just pause for a moment. This is utterly ridiculous. Think about it for a moment. He silenced the Sadducees, 
And this shows you the blindness of the heart, right? Maybe you would say, gosh, maybe we need to hear this man. Let's go and learn his message. Let's hear what he has to say. But what does evil do? Let's collaborate here instead. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So they test him. Instead of learning from him, let's think perhaps we can get him. We're superior to the Sadducees. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, greatest commandment, to love God. It's a broad, broad consideration, isn't it? And we said earlier, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. You will obey me. What does it mean to be a lover of God, a follower of God? One who is going to sacrifice for God. One who has affections for God. And this is why, let's end with these thoughts. To be a lover of God means what? One who is going to be pleasing to God. Go with me, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Pleasing to God. If I say that I'm a lover of God, I will surely be one who is pleasing to God. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, What therefore we all have as our ambition. Pause for a moment. The world says have this ambition. Christianity says, no, let's properly orient your ambitions, whether at home or absent, to be what? Pleasing to him. Pleasing to him. Look with me at Ephesians 5.10. Ephesians 5.10. What does it say there? Um, In verse 9, well, let's go verse 7. Do not be partakers with them, really is the thought that we saw in 1 Peter 4. You're formerly darkness, now you're light in the Lord. And this light consists in goodness and righteousness and truth, the things that we should be striving for. Then verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to him. Now notice the language there, trying to learn. It means that you are striving. God, help me understand what will please you. As I am on this road of faith, how do I navigate it properly? Which means we constantly must be asking ourselves, God, give me direction. Pleasing. What else? If we're going to be a lover of God, um, what time is it? Three to six? What? Oh, six. Okay, good. Excellent. I still have time. Almost ten. Ten, one, ten, and the other. Loving God. What else should we do? Standing for God. We must stand for the Lord. Uh, we need courageous people, do we not? We people who can stand up for the faith and stand for these truths. And if you're going to be a love of God, you cannot shrink back. You must stand for him. Philippians 3.10. If we're going to be a love of God, we will have communion with God. What did Paul say there? Paul communicated there. He says what? That I might know him, he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Communion with God. A person who is not communing with God cannot possibly be a person who loves God. It is this, hope in God. Hebrews 10, 23, that we hope in him because we look forward to something not realized now. It is this, if we're to be lovers of God, we have to be content in God. Um, Psalm 16, 5 says, in God's presence is the fullness of joy. I'm content in the Lord. 
This is the thought of Philippians, to be content, learning the secret to be content. And if you're content, you won't love the world. If you're content in God, you don't need the lust of the flesh. You won't strive for the boastful pride of life because you find contentment in him. Here's the last thought. If you're to be a lover of God, run the race. Run the race. I've used a a number of athletic analogies throughout. It's Pauline, run the race. But you have to run it well. Let me read something in my time with you. Um, And I'll just start here. The damaged conscience of our country has a history of many bright moments in Freeing captive families is one of them. Kidnapping is an act despised by the Lord, 1 Timothy 1, 8-12. It actually says those who are kidnappers will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It contradicts the faith we hold dear. And my visits to Charleston amid its beauty, amidst its beauty, um, I am reminded that it once bustled with humans sold like cattle and land. You may not be aware that 85% of all slaves into the States made their way through Charleston. Whenever I think of slavery, I consider the slavery I once experienced as I walked according to the course of this world and the prince of darkness, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3. Now I stand complete in Christ, fully immature in sentence. What a joy to know that Christ has sufficiently paid for my sin and adopted me into his family. I am still a slave but for a gracious and holy master. You should desire to live your life in honor of the most remarkable emancipation imaginable, rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Whereas most slaves of the past desired a life of freedom, which led many to risk their lives to gain it, every slave of sin is incapable of changing nor do they want to change on God's terms. This requires divine intervention. Ephesians 2.4, my favorite phrase in the Bible, but God. That opened the eyes of the spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4.6, and bids them come to the land of freedom only found through Christ. You help others escape the cruelest slave owner and experience life and the loving family of the Savior who died to set men free. Sharing the gospel. That's what you do. And unlike slaves of the past, some of them would in fact risk their lives to be free. I've been to places and I've followed the trail. But unlike them... When you're bound to sin, you don't want to be free. You love the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. And the only way that they can realize their need for freedom is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Share the gospel. That's your calling. That's your purpose. Amen.